HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and uh, we are going to be talking about water again. I'm on a little tear about water and water systems around the country. I've covered uh, some of the water problems in Miami. We talked to some people in North Carolina about the aftermath of Hurricane Florence uh, and what that's done to water quality issues in that ag-heavy state. And today we're going to discuss water with a hydraulic engineer named Chris Jones. Um, He's actually a research engineer at the University of Iowa's Institute of Hydraulic Research, Hydroscience, and Engineering Center. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show, Chris. Uh, You're welcome. My pleasure. So now you are the lead author on a recently published study, which was picked up by Civil Eats, um, and that's where I read about it first, uh, in which you examined uh, Iowa Stream nitrate and the Gulf of Mexico. In other words, how uh, farmland and agricultural uh, runoff uh, from Iowa contributes to the Gulf Zone, uh, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which by last estimates, I believe, was some sort of 5,000 square miles. Am I correct in that? Uh, well, that's the goal, uh, 5,000 square miles. Oh, you mean because it's bigger now? Well, um, I think this year it was around that, but uh, the, the objective, the long-term objective is, is 5,000 square kilometers. Excuse square me. kilometers, okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, 
So that uh, as is measured as a five-year running annual average. And so last year we had a very large um, a dead zone, uh, one of the biggest ever measured. And then this year it was it's quite a bit smaller. And what would attribute that? What would, what would contribute to its size uh, growing? Was Is that because it rained a lot or and shrinking is because we have a drought? Well, uh, there's a lot of factors that uh, contribute to uh, Gulf of Mexico hypoxia. Of course, when we talk about a lot are these nutrients uh, coming down the Mississippi River uh, from the Midwestern Corn Belt. And, of course, high nutrient levels in the Mississippi certainly increase the likelihood of a, a large dead zone. Uh, but then there's other climatic factors that figure in as well, including winds and, and temperature and cloudiness and, and these sorts of things. So, so yeah, Nobody ever not, talks about uh, that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think I've heard some things that perhaps uh, some of this a red tide in, in Florida maybe is uh, perhaps related to the Mississippi River um, nutrients, but uh, that's not something I'm, I'm real knowledgeable about. Well, um, just to quickly um, and briefly tell you what I learned in speaking to people from um, the University of Miami, um, and that mm-hmm. was that it's primarily um, overflow from uh, the... Um, the dairy farms and also the corn industry, and it's because of the the, ver- the sort of diking system that they have going in and out of Lake Okeechobee, and mm-hmm. um, and then into the Everglades. And they, you know, basically they've reduced all of the the natural pathways that would normally absorb some of those nutrients, and that and that is contributing uh, tremendously to what would is a normally occurring phenomenon, which is red tide. Um, but then it's con- complicated by this big uh, cyanoalgae bloom. Um, as well, that's coming through Okeechobee as a result of, of fertilizer runoff. There, there you have it in a nutshell. You can actually okay. go. <laughs> there you can go back so, and yes, listen to they've, that. <laughs> they've they've changed their hydrology there, just like we have here. So. so, we'll actually talk a little bit about how you've changed your hydrology in um, in Iowa, uh, in because this this study actually covers uh, about eleven years. Am I right? Uh, actually, it's a little longer than that, 1999 oh, yeah, to 2016. Right. And um, um, to address the first part of that, um, you know, Iowa, before Europeans got here, was mainly wet prairie and, and wetlands. And, um, you know, to maximize production of corn and soybeans, we've we've lowered the water table by oh. installing these drainage tiles. Right. And so that's a network of pipes, network of porous pipes that are about a meter down uh, in farm fields. And, and that lowers the, the water table, as I said, and it enhances condition, conditions for corn and soybean production. And so we know, and we've known for a long time, that uh, this constructed drainage system is a primary delivery mechanism uh, for nitrate from mm. farm fields to the stream network. And so uh, Iowa, the the landscape is a much drier place now than it was 150 years ago. Yeah, sure sounds like it. And that could be a problem going forward as we heat up, I imagine, right? That's right. And so we're get you know, as we drain and we dry out the soils, uh, we actually uh, have seen an increase in rainfall here in Iowa, especially over the last 40 to 50 years. And so it's it's much wetter now uh, in terms of the amount of precipitation that we get. Hmm. And so farmers respond to that uh, by improving the drainage infrastructure 
uh, in their fields. And so it's a, a bit of a vicious circle, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the drainage is what moves the nitrate, and uh, and we respond to more rainfall with with more drainage, and right. then of course we get more nitrate, right. and so. Um, so yes, yes, that's a problem. So let's let's just go back for a second to the study. Um, so you it was, uh, you know, a seventeen year long study in which you made this, you know, an examination of these cycles that were going on. L- let me ask you. Who, I, I always like to know who commissioned the study, um, who paid for the study, like how, so how, how did work, this happen? Uh, <laughs> so I, I work in what's called uh, IIHR Hydroscience and Engineering, and our we have a real diverse um, source of funding. Um, and so some of this uh, was funded. The graduate student, uh, Jacob Nielsen, who's the second author, his his time here was largely funded through the, the Iowa Nutrient Reduction uh, Strategy or the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Center, I should say. Uh-huh. But we have various sources of funding, and so no one actually commissioned the study. This is just a graduate project that Jacob... Jacob was assigned by his thesis advisor, which was Larry Weber, and uh-huh. and um, so that's it. It's it's not a commission study. I see, and and so um, given the um, the politics of water in Iowa, with which I'm quite familiar because I've interviewed Bill Stowe numerous times mm-hmm. on this program about his suit. Uh, against mm-hmm. the Upper River Counties, and I saw that actually you had put in some time as a hydraulic superintendent at the Des Moines Waterworks. Is that right? Well, I, I supervised the laboratory there. Yeah, su- excuse me, supervised the lab. I was just like glancing through yeah. your CV real quick, and I saw that. Um, so, so how did the report go down? <laughs> like, how, how did well, the how did the farmers uh, respond to this report, which basically says that they're killing the Gulf of Mexico? Well, um, you know, we've known uh, for quite a while about hypoxia and, and uh, the triggers and, and what causes it. And and so I think we just, with the, with the paper, we helped characterize that a little bit better and, and Iowa's role in the hypoxic zone. A lot of times people do ask me uh, whether or not I've encountered hostility about this and other work and and the answer is i really don't mm-hmm. um you know i don't uh, interact with farmers a lot i i do some um, sure but you know the reactions aren't aren't hostile but there is you know a lot of the uh, instinct here is to really default to to the weather as the the cause of this oh really and, and so you know, when we when we saturate the landscape with a water soluble pollutant like nitrate, it stands to reason when we get more rain, more of that's going to make it to the streams. But you know, we know we have uh, two factors here that control nitrate delivery, and, and those two things are, tra- are can be grouped into transport limitations and supply limitations. And of course, we've greatly increased the supply of of nitrate here on the landscape that's vulnerable to loss through our drainage infrastructure and then through our farming practices. And then when the rain comes along, it's going to, you know, it's going to dissolve that and move it. So, 
you know, when you were making, you know, doing this study, uh, you guys were focusing on, on the delivery of all this uh, runoff to the Gulf of Mexico. But what about the impact on local riparian systems? In other words, like, like I noticed, I've been to Des Moines several times now. And um, although I, I noticed this la- most recent time that it was a lot better, but normally speaking, the river smells horrible. Um, and I know from Bill Stowe of the Des Moines Waterworks that the water quality in the city is very poor and um, that many millions of dollars have been spent in trying to remedy that. So when farmers think about that, I mean, I know you're not a farmer and you don't interact with them that much, but I mean, how, how do you convey that this is not just an impact on a faraway place like the Gulf of Mexico, but it's an impact on your neighbors? Is there any way to so, make that? Yeah, so that's a good question, and we that gets discussed a lot, and that this hypoxia problem is is a distant sort of thing, and you know it's it's not something that many people um, really are aware of. I don't think I I heard a a fisherman um, or a shrimper from Louisiana say once that most of the fishermen. Um, down there are aware of hypoxia, but even they aren't very knowledgeable about what causes it. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we do have local effects uh, on water quality. And so we have, in Iowa, I think we have about 100 uh, natural lakes uh, that were formed by glaciers, and and many of those are impaired because of of runoff into them, um, nitrogen and phosphorus runoff into them. We have um, maybe about the same number of constructed lakes, mm-hmm. and uh, those tend to be impaired even more severely because, um, you know, those uh, have a, a stream that runs through them. It's their flow-through systems, and so consequently they get a lot of nutrient delivery. And so we, we, have, we do have uh, effects on our lakes that uh, algae blooms uh, in the summertime and then uh, streams, uh, like you say, in Des Moines, uh, Raccoon and Des Moines rivers both can can have um, algae blooms, and and they uh, those are used as a source of drinking water. Yeah, and so with elevated uh, nitrate in the drinking water in the source water, the the utility there has to remove nitrate, and I think there's about about 60 communities in, in Iowa that have uh, issues with nitrate. Um, either they're removing it or their their system is threatened by high levels. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we do have local uh, issues related to water quality here. And not just the nutrients, also sediment and some other things. And, and those, um, those issues do tend to hit home a little bit, you know, better or, or a little bit... Uh, they're more apparent than Gulf of Mexico hypoxia. And so, yes, we do talk about these things in the context of both the regional issues and then the local issues. Right. And then, so what is the, what is the um, you know, I, I, I've understood from Bill Stowe and from actually other farmers in Iowa, strangely enough, I'm 
I, I speak to quite a few of them. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> they, uh, you know, they all have complained about the fact that the state uh, it always seems to be very firmly in the pocket of the larger agricultural concerns, you know, the big soy farmers, the big corn farmers, um, which aren't even really farmers so much as they are big corporations at this point. I mean, it's not, you know, these aren't just, you know, mom and pop and they're farming, you know, 500 acres. The, the, these are tens of thousands of acres under under cultivation. And so that that entity has had quite um, a silencing effect uh, both on Bill Stowe uh, and his quest for uh, cleaning up the water system and getting ratepayers to pay for a new water filtration system, which is what is required, as I understand it, in Des Moines and probably in other places. Like, do you do you play politics at all, Chris, or is that you're just like you're you're no, just I, just the facts, no, man? And- <laughs> uh, no, no, I I can't afford to do that. But right, you know the the idea that. Um, that these are big corporate farms um, is sort of true, but in Iowa we do have some some laws about land ownership. And when you look at the number of farmers that we have, which is about ninety thousand, I think, mm-hmm. and the number of acres that are farmed, which is about twenty four million, and you do that math, you know that's only about four to five hundred acres per farm per farmer. Right. Now, some farmers are farming thousands of acres, yeah. and we do have these LLCs set up that, you know, can be several family family members, for example, uh, brothers, cousins, mm-hmm. wives, and so forth, um, where where they are farming a lot of acres. But, you know, this nutrient issue, I mean, it does connect to the size of the farms a little bit. But I don't see that as the primary driver here. It's just uh, this corn-soybean system is really vulnerable to leaking nitrogen to the drainage infrastructure. And that's true whether we're talking about 40 acres or whether we're talking about 4,000 acres. Sure. Right. Now, your study only measured the impact of corn-soy agriculture, row cropping on water, Um what about, I mean, I know it's not included in this, but I'm just curious about the hog waste issues because obviously Iowa is home to many, many hogs um, and much hog waste mm-hmm. as a result. And I know that that is also an infrastructural problem that hasn't been adequately dealt with. Um, do you have any opinion on that or is that just sort of like not even part of this picture in terms of the hypoxia down, you know, flowing downstream? Yeah. So I, I do have another paper submitted that looks at... Um, animal waste that's in review and um you know we've always had a lot of hogs here yeah and uh, but what's changed is that um you know the concentration and so i i don't know if i'm quoting the numbers exactly but i think in 1982 we had about 65,000 farmers that had hogs and the total number of hogs was about 14 million hogs uh huh and 20 years later, we had 10,000 farmers, uh, and we still had 14 million hogs. And yeah. so uh, the hogs have been concentrated in, you know, uh, on a few farms, and those farms that have hogs are very likely to be concentrated in certain areas of the state. Right. And so one is in northwest 
northwest Iowa, there's an area concentration in north central Iowa, and then we have an area in southeast Iowa. And so in those areas, in those uh, counties, I, I do think that uh, the concentration of, of hogs and also cattle, uh, mm-hmm. which is northwest Iowa, has had an effect on water quality, and especially in, in maybe some of these streams flowing to the Missouri River. Mm-hmm. And so we've got another paper in review, as I said, that looks at that, and I do think it's an issue, and it, but more of a localized issue and not you know, a statewide one. Yes. Okay. Except that, I mean, could one extrapolate? I mean, we, you and I will be talking about that paper when it publishes, my friend. Um, <laughs> that's a that, that, that's that's a promise, not a threat. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get accepted. <laughs> I'm trusting in your scholarship. I am. Um, what I was going to say is, would there be lessons to be learned from your experiences in Iowa, both in the row cropping aspects and in the in the animal waste aspects that could be applied to other states that are similarly? I'm thinking of North Carolina specifically, because they're also a big row cropping state, although they don't grow the same as you, um, but they grow a whole lot of hogs there. Um, and, you know, obviously, I'm sure you've been following their their problems with, um, you know, the breaches of lagoons and the, the way they don't manage their waste and, and the various lawsuits that have happened and so forth. Um, and I know that in, in uh, Iowa right now, there's an ongoing lawsuit against a company that wants to open another big CAFO. Um, is it Jefferson County? Is that Does that sound right to you? It's my, my friend Francis Tickey who um, alerted me to That's, that. He does live in Jefferson County. Yeah, so somebody is trying to build another really large hog facility, and his county is fighting against it. Um, and largely, I think, because of the nuisance issues, such as water quality impacts and, and air, air quality. We're going to take a quick break right now for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Chris Jones, a research engineer at the University of Iowa's Institute of Hydraulic Research, Hydroscience, and Engineering Center to talk more about water quality issues in Iowa. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. I was reading in a very recently published um, paper by the United States Geological Survey, Circular number 1437, Understanding the Influence of Nutrients on Stream Ecosystems in Agricultural Land. I understood this paper to be saying essentially that tile drainage, the system of tile drainage is in fact adding to, as you, in fact, you've just confirmed this, um, adding to the nutrient runoff because in the natural riparian system of streams and creeks and stuff like that, there's there are you know stream beds and there are curves, 
uh, that all tend to trap more of the nutrients as they flow through. And so what I'm understanding from this paper is that, in fact, the whole tile drainage system sucks, in fact. So here's a, here's, there's two things to consider here in terms of the hydrology. Uh, one is the, the streams, as you say, uh, have been straightened and what we call incised. And so many of our streams in Iowa have been incised. And so that we, they took the meanders out of them, yeah. you know, a, a hundred years ago. Um, you know, so they wouldn't have to turn corners going around, um, going around these streams to, to farm. And then it made them easier to levy too. Um, you know, so we channelize these streams and, and so, yes, they, when the nitrate gets in the stream, it doesn't get consumed as well by the aquatic life in that stream because the biodiversity of the stream has been greatly degraded. Uh, by this stream incision. So that's one thing. Okay. The second thing is, um, you know, when you look at a drop of rain, uh, when it fell on the landscape in Iowa, how long would it take for that drop of rain to get to the stream network? And so in some of these um, watersheds in Iowa, that number would have been in the centuries. Hmm. So that drop of rain would have, would have taken a very long time to seep through the the soil profile and through the aquifers and out through the uh, shallow alluvial aquifers in the rivers. And, the, and in some of these watersheds, as I said, that may have been as long as, say, two, three hundred years or maybe even longer. Wow. Um, now, with tile drainage and, and other modifications, uh, conversion of a perennial prairie system to annual crops, um, you know, that now is been changed to on the order of days to maybe two years in some of these systems. And so we greatly hasten the flow of water from the landscape to the streams. Uh So some of these nutrients otherwise would get consumed, you know, in the trip there um, as that water traveled. But now it goes so fast, the water gets uh, delivered to the stream ne- network so, so fast that there's no opportunity for microorganisms or plant roots or anything like that to, to grab onto it uh-huh. and um, sequester it and use it before it gets to the stream network. So the altered hydrology here is a, is a huge issue. And so a lot of times we, we just look at fertilization practices and what the farmers are doing. Uh, but the the average person doesn't realize how much this altered hydrology is a is a factor here. And so, Chris, like if um, okay, say they're you know I don't see anyone not uh, farming corn and soy anytime soon. Like you know at least in the mm-hmm. next ten or fifteen years, I don't see that profile changing in Iowa. Um, but uh, so that means that you have another ten or fifteen years of of this amount of runoff or more. Um, because as the soil becomes more depleted, I think it's fair to say that they have to apply more fertilizer, right? Um, yes. What What is the answer here? Like how, I know you guys have a nutrient, uh, you know, Iowa nutrient reduction plan, and you were going to try to hit a 45% reduction target by this year or something. Um, what, what are the prospects for that happening? And, and, and more importantly, what are solutions? Like what is, what are other methods, uh, you know, You've done the hydrology, you've changed the stream beds, you've added the tile drainage. Um, you can't really back out of that so easily. So 
is it just about changing farming practices vis-a-vis uh, fertilizer, or is there some other method that you can envision that could be implemented that would have that So, yes, we, we have the nutrient reduction strategy, and the objective was to reduce nutrient loading 45%. There was not a, a date set for that, so mm-hmm. it's open-ended. But the 45% is consistent with the objectives for the Gulf of Mexico hypoxic zone. So how, how do we get there in this corn soy system? And, and we know that's a really difficult um, thing to accomplish. And so the practices that we have uh, that are approved for state cost share dollars are what we call edge of field practices, which are things like wetlands yeah. that uh, intercept the tile water before it gets to the stream network. Uh, we also have what we call saturated buffers, uh, where the tile water is intercepted underground um, in the riparian area of the stream. And then we have wood chip bioreactors, uh, which are just sort of little mini miniature treatment plants mm-hmm. for the tile water to consume nitrate. Then we also have infield practices that the, the farmers can use. Uh, and then one thing that we're really kind of looking to as a silver bullet here is cover crops. And so cover crops are things like uh, cereal rye or radishes or some other plants that the farmers uh, plant near the end of the corn-soy growing season. Yeah. And they grow in the fall. They have a significant growth in the fall. They sequester some water and some nutrients and prevent that nutrient loss. And so um, we feel like we need maybe 50 to about 70% of our our acres in Iowa in cover crops, and you know we only have three percent right now. So, wow. you know it's really um, a long road to hoe here, uh, and we know this is just going to be a really uh, expensive thing to solve this in the corn soy system. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably a billion dollar a year problem mm-hmm. just in Iowa. Oh my gosh! And uh, to to get the to get there, and you know, we're not investing anywhere near that amount of money right now. Well, that that leads me uh, to the question, um, which was brought up in the Civil Eats article um, that you were quoted in, which was the impact of two programs that are currently in the Farm Bill, and are um, at least one of them is is being considered to be folded into another one with essentially a loss, some loss of of finances. One of them is the Conservation Steward program, which I think a lot of my listeners certainly are familiar with, um, which does encourage uh, farmers to do exactly the measures that you've been discussing, you know, uh, buffer zones, cover crops, etc. And then there's another uh, thing called EQIP, I guess, EQIP, um, mm-hmm. that they're talking about folding the conservation stewardship program into the EQIP program. And that would somehow uh, address the farmer's needs in terms of financial incentives and or investments in making these changes to their practices. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those programs and whether they are the answer in a way or whether it's going to require something much more draconian. So I know something about this, but I I should emphasize that, you know, I'm not an authority on the farm programs. And I, I don't certainly don't speak for the industry on that. But yeah, CSP and, and EQIP, uh, I think the total outlay was about $1 billion in 2007, and that's about $2.7 billion uh, currently. Mm-hmm. 
And those two comprise about half of all the federal expenditures uh, on farm conservation. And so EQIP provides cost share uh, to farmers to help them comply or avoid regulation. And so, you know, a lot of that's been directed to the livestock industry because of that. Uh Uh, CSP is more of a a thing where farmers get multi-year contracts for conservation stewardship and and practices that perhaps benefit the the long-term productive capacity of that farm, but also provide some environmental benefit. Right. So as I understand it, and I think you mentioned this, the House Farm Bill uh, would take CSP down to zero uh, and sort of fold it into EQIP, which would increase to about $3 billion by uh, 2028. Uh, so the... The, the thing here, though, is the House bill shifts the CSP contracting authority to equip, uh, but the c- crop stewardship activities is limited to a maximum of 50% of the total, total budget authority provided to equip. Uh, so mm-hmm. this would uh, result in at least a $5 billion reduction over 10 years in the, in the funds available for the, for the working land stewardship. Uh-huh. And so the the effect of this, uh, well, firstly, another big change is that uh, these irrigation districts in, in drier parts of the country would be able to c- compete for these equip dollars oh. uh, for water efficiency projects, which they aren't currently. Uh-huh. So what this means essentially is that if this were to pass, uh, if the House version were to pass, more more of this money would go towards southern areas that are growing cotton and rice and peanuts and um, to these irrigated regions, you know, to the west and southwest of Iowa. And so this would sort of be, most likely be at the expense of people farming corn and soybeans here in the Midwest. And so potentially, you know, this could help some farmers um, in other places, south and southwest of here, but uh, like Iowa, Iowa farmers, and uh, you know, it might be at the expense of their conservation dollars, which certainly would not help in terms of these Mississippi River Basin issues. Mm-hmm. I guess I mean I I, I want to wrap this up because I, I I realize my program is so nerdy and so long, and it, I just get such a deep dive because I'm so interested in this stuff. But I, you know, I, other people perhaps do not have the same tolerance as I do. Anyway. Um, I, I want to pull back for a second, Chris, and look at this as a macro problem, because Iowa is not operating in a vacuum. These are issues that are coming up in state after state. In your report alone, you mentioned Kansas and Missouri and Illinois as other states that are coping with the same issues regarding uh, cropping, like so- corn, soy, but especially mm-hmm. corn. So so looking as, as a hydrologist or a hy- hydraulic engineer looking at the nation as a whole how are we going to dig our way out of this uh you know problem before we really essentially run out of drinking water um for big population centers well you know the story of american agriculture um going back to the 1930s is it's sort of a victim of its own success in that, yeah. you know, it's produced more than what we need. And, um, you know, that has consequences all over the place in terms of economics and then, then also the environment. 
and you know at least for for soybeans we've we've been able to develop these former these foreign markets uh which have been able to absorb uh, our production here and then we've had the the ethanol industry that also has been able to absorb all our production for corn and now you know the economics of all that is is changing a little bit and so we know that um we know that these diverse farms, uh, at least in terms of nutrients, do, do not have the nutrient loss that a, that a strictly corn-soybean rotation has. We know that. Yeah. And so when they put other things in rotation like oats or alfalfa or, or wheat or what have you, uh, that that very likely you know, can reduce nutrient loss from those acres. Now, how do you make that work uh, economically? for the farmer. And so, you know, Iowa used to be the number one oats producing state and, you know, now we're not even close. And a farmer's not going to grow oats if he doesn't have some place to sell them. Sure. And so I think the ultimate answer here is how do we create some diversity on these farms? You know, we went from a, a system, a perennial system that had hundreds of species uh, and that being the, the prairie and the wetlands, and we we condense that down to a system with two species that are both annual, both annuals, uh, corn and soybeans, and then we want that system to produce environmental outcomes, and you know that are favorable for recreation and drinking water and and angling and, and these sorts of things. And so sometimes I think our expectations are maybe not right and so we know that diversity is good all over the place in nature and we we know uh, that these diverse farms are likely to deliver next, fewer nutrients to the gulf but how do we get there and how do we make it work economically yeah and how so do we move the, the political how do we move the politics towards that because all I see from where I'm sitting is uh, you know industrial interests that are aggregated firmly against changing the status quo um, whether it's lobbying organizations on behalf of large corn and soy uh, producers or whether it's you know the meat industry lobbying for their interests um, you know it, it seems a very heavy lift to get any of these you know uh, industries to you know, function on some kind of uh, vaguely altruistic level. <laughs> sure. So that's why I think it's a mistake sometimes to sometimes to just look to the farmer for this stuff. Oh, totally. Because uh, these these uh, big companies, you know, they they want to advertise products of being produced sustainably. Yeah. And they they want to put a green stamp on it, uh, but they don't want to shoulder the burden. Right. For the costs associated with that and they don't want to put that money in the farm bill they don't you know they don't right the politicians don't want to put the money in the farm bill because then they won't get the campaign contributions from these larger organizations it's a it's it's a a big problem so yeah so here in iowa yeah we uh we had this lawsuit and everybody's mad at each other um, yeah and but we expect nothing from the people buying these commodities. We expect nothing from these companies in, in the context of, of water quality and air quality and mm-hmm. 
So here we are, we were exploiting our natural resources, um, and, you know, the users of, of the products really bear no burden for the consequences. And so that's where I think there, we, we need to be careful before we have a knee-jerk reaction to the farmer and what they're doing because, um, you know, they, they are locked into a system here a little yes. bit. Yes. I'm I'm entirely sympathetic to the plight of the farmer. I mean, I know it, you know very well. After ten years of doing this show, I get how uh, you know risk averse you need to be, how risky your life is uh, being a farmer, how much work it takes, and um, and also the way the market drives farming or agricultural concerns in this country. I'm I'm pretty pretty hip to that. So you know, my feeling is like in terms of like hog waste. I think the big, you know meat companies like Tyson and Smithfield et al., that they have an obligation to put waste reduction strategies into place in their contract farmers' locations that completely absolve the farmer of you know any financial necessity to cope with those problems that they are essentially creating by, by aggregating pigs in that way. Did I make that clear? In other words, I think yeah. the companies should be in charge of waste production. I think the companies that are making the big bucks on these crops should be in charge, should be financially responsible for maintaining water and air quality. Those are That's my feeling. Well, we, we all have responsibilities here and as consumers as well. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I think this, uh, you know, if we, if we want... Um, a sustainable system and we want these amenities that come along with clean water and and recreation and, and yeah. all that stuff uh yeah these are huge enormous uh problems uh, you know the whole wicked problem thing that's what this is yeah. it's going to take uh, it's going to take a, an effort by everybody involved in the whole value chain and yes the farmers are are the ones that are <clears throat> closest to the production of the commodities, but still uh, everybody that uses those commodities has to recognize that they're, they're part of this. Absolutely. Like I will pay more money. I will pay more money if I know that my extra five cents on the dollar or whatever it is, is going towards, uh, you know, repairing uh, or otherwise improving water quality in farm country. Where people are, I know that people are are being adversely impacted by this. I know that there are towns in Kansas where they all drink bottled water because they don't have enough money municipally to create a wastewater treatment plant that actively and adequately removes the nutrients from their agricultural world. I mean, you know, and you know, we've we know here in Iowa there's been polls uh, conducted that that really show that. Um, Iowa citizens are willing to pay for clean water. They're they're willing to pay. Yeah. So, you know, how do we how do we get there? How do we get create? How do we create systems that that deliver the the outcomes that we want? And yes, these farm bill programs are important, and we we hate to lose them, but we also have to recognize that the existing existing programs haven't gotten us to where we want to be. Interesting. And this is, um, it's, it's a huge, enormous problem. It's a lift. It's an educational process mm-hmm. that you are actively engaged in. 
<clears throat> I'm going to wrap it up there. And thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. Do let me know when that, uh, you know, when your paper is accepted about okay. uh, hog waste management. I'm fascinated. I wrote a book about the meat industry. That was one of my favorite okay. subjects. <laughs> Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks so much to my sponsor. Um, and I recognize that uh, we'll have to do a little editing post-show so that we can add that break in the center for my sponsor drop. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next time. So long, Chris. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.